Okay, Revelation 14. We kind of ran through it quickly last week. I would like to um, do a quick review and make a few more comments to clarify. The chapter begins, John's vision is described again. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I'm sorry, I'm biting my tongue for a moment. I just had a thought run through my head. I, I, it would not, I, never mind. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever it goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie, has, lie is found, for they are blameless. Now, we looked at this last week as a comparison to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is some judgment and punishment and condemnation upon the beast. Well, not really judgment or condemnation, but the beast and the dragon, the great serpent, are ruling the world and bringing to pass a lot of persecution in the world. And chapter 14, as we looked at them together, gives us hope and promise that through all of it, God's chosen are secure. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in tonight's lesson as well. Verse 6, John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with, a, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. I wanted to do a little bit more research on this phrase because something went through my mind and I, it turned into a dead end or potentially some heresy, so I didn't want to go there. Uh, so I was incorrect in thinking, just I had a question in my mind, I wanted to check that. But whenever we look at this, we, we wonder, we always assume the word gospel, and it's the same word, euangelion, or evangelism in the Greek, but gospel, we always think of it as good news, God's grace, salvation, redemption. And I'm not saying that it, none of it here, but we need to remind ourselves that the gospel also gives a warning. That's why there have been a lot of people that have forsaken the idea that the gospel requires repentance, or accepting Christ requires repentance. That is a lie. That's not true. God loves us unconditionally. That has become a lie. If you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, if you have received him as your Savior, 
you have more, you're loved unconditionally. But if you're lost and in rebellion and proud and arrogant and in defiance of him, how can you possibly think that he would love you for that? Those of us who have married understand that when a couple, a husband and wife, or a bride and a groom come to the altar before a minister and before a church and repeat vows, they are promising to be faithful. They are not promising to love one another unconditionally. Right? It doesn't. It sounds cruel to put it this way, but she is saying to him and he is saying to her, you better love me. And if you're unfaithful and you break my heart, there's a price to be paid. Love requires faithfulness. If God loves us, he promises to be faithful. And in Christ Jesus, he is eternally faithful. So we need to understand this idea that he loves me unconditionally is, is a bit of a lie because he expects us to repent. He expects us to return to him, to put him first, to love him most of it, and to be faithful to him as though we were the bride and he was our husband. Because if you go back and read the very early part of Israel's history, when he gave them the commandments, before he listed the ten, he said, I am a jealous God. So this angel proclaiming the gospel is giving a warning. Time has run out. The gospel has been proclaimed and While God is gracious, God is also just. There will be recompense. There will be payment for all those sins against his law. None of us wants to see a repeat offender, a criminal, a violent man come before a judge and all he says is, I'm sorry, and the judge lets him go. Or the judge lets him go on a technicality. Legal mumbo-jumbo. We've seen too much of that where criminals are turned loose. And even more lately, they're turned loose before they even go to see a judge. And they go out and hurt someone else or kill someone else or rob someone else. God is just. And part of the gospel is that you can be assured that he is just, that he is going to, he is going to handle every sin, every offense, every wrong in this world, every violent act, every lie, every bit of suffering he is going to punish.
believe it's Psalm 78. It might be 73. Let's go look. Psalm 73. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just beginning at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. This, this is kind of a lament. The psalmist is, he's wondering why the righteous suffer while the guilty, the sinners seem to be in comfort and ease and wealth. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the penetration, excuse me, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist recognizes this dilemma. They live in comfort, they live in ease, they live in pleasure, they get everything they want. And we try and maintain righteous life. And the psalmist is struggling with something that seems so unfair, unfair but he says, if I continue talking like this, I would betray a generation. We as Christians need to stand firm because we're already, the church across America and around the world is already, already losing too many of our young people. Y'all not going anywhere, are you? So God is just, and God's grace is a wonderful thing to come to you as a gift received. But the gospel is also a terrible thing if you reject it, because there is good news for us to know that God will punish every sin. You want to know what's fair? We're going to see a lot of fair come the end days come judgment day we're going to see what is fair and it's 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 going to be just it's going to be righteous god's gracious god is a gracious god and god is a just god second thing verse 8 another of uh, revelation 14 another angel a second followed saying fallen fallen is babylon the great she who made all nations drink wine, the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. Satan's doom is sure. This goes along with that judgment that comes with the gospel. He's already defeated. He's finished. Verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is the doom of the proud sinner. This is the doom of the lost. They are condemned to hell, and hell does exist. And this is something I've... I heard R.C. Sproul talk about this once, and I really need to think about this because it's deep. Do we believe that God is omnipresent? That means He is everywhere at all times? He will be, the lost will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So then, God will be in hell too? He can be. And this seems to suggest that his presence will be and they will be so offended by it. That's how proud and arrogant and lost they are. They don't want him there. And it seems like his presence is part of their punishment. Yeah, unbridled fear, yeah. Terror. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Hell is eternal. Punishment is eternal. Damnation is eternal. And have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its images... And whoever receives the mark on his name, of his name. I remember growing up, it seemed like every year there was some sermon series or some preaching or some teaching about the tribulation. And watch out because during that tribulation, after the Lord raptures the church out, the devil's going to come in and he's going to make everybody take the mark of the beast. So if, if, if you're here, if, you're, if you don't receive Jesus before the rapture, if you're here, don't you receive that mark of the beast. You know, we see some signs in what's going on in this world today, but I'm not convinced that it's going to be a literal sign on your hand or on your forehead. And I, we've talked about this before. It's those who serve him, serve Satan with their strength and with their mind. And we also need to remember that all of this time, I never heard of any of these dispensational preachers who are promising the coming rapture that the church would be protected and taken out of this tribulation time. None of them ever talked about the saints being marked by the Lord. But we need to see this and read this because that mark gives us security. We are His. And He will not let us go. And that mark on the loss means they belong to Satan. They're marked for destruction. Their end is done.
verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their, and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from saying, excuse me, from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and from their, for their deeds follow them. If you look closely and you read honestly in the book of Revelation, God does not promise protection from suffering. But he promises that he would be with us through it. And he promises deliverance beyond it. Heidelberg Catechism. How does the article, question 58 I believe, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? We are promised life everlasting. The answer, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I have perfect, perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no, no, no ear has heard, no human heart has ever imagined. A blessedness in which to praise God forever. So we might have some suffering to go through. There's going to be Christians, there have been Christians, and there will continue to be some Christians who are going to face some physical, earthly trials and tribulation, some persecution. We have an eternal hope beyond. If, you know, I've used this whole sanctuary as an illustration of eternity and if I could put a pinpoint right there right there that'd be bigger than a molecule compared to eternity that's the span of your life that little dot from birth to death and any suffering in there is nothing compared to the glory that we will find in Christ forever and ever. I remember an evangelist years ago, he's been dead for a long, long time. I know you've heard of him. He started a university called Bob Jones. His favorite hymn was Amazing Grace. But every time they sang it in chapel, he would insist that the students change a couple of the words. When we've been there 10,000 years, he would say, no. When we've been there 10 trillion years, bright shining of the sun, he said, because compared to eternity, 10,000 years ain't no time before breakfast. We cannot comprehend it's, it's timeless, eternity. Let's not worry about this life so much. Let's not fear what could happen to us in this life so much. Let us find bold hope and promise in eternity.
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's one hymn I don't think many people in this church know. Some of you may have heard it. It was a very beautiful, glorious hymn for all the saints. I'm just going to read the words. I'm not going to sing it. If you want to read it, it's 58. And the author of this had this passage in mind when it was written. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness, drear, their one true light. Hallelujah, hallelujah. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The golden evening brightens in the re- in the west. Soon, soon the faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless hosts, singing to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. It's a very beautiful hymn. Even when it's sung. But I'm convinced the author of that was inspired by Revelation 14. Verse 14 of the chapter. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on on the cloud one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head. So this is the Son of Man. This is Christ the King. And a sharp sickle in his hand And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar and the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. (laughs) 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And there's been a lot of controversy about this. Some people think that it's going to literally happen in the valley in Israel. But if we're looking at everything that is a symbolic language, a poetic language, a beautiful language, then we, we cannot take some of these things as literal. 1600 stadia, you take 4 squared times 10 squared and you've got 1600. 4 and 10 are, to the Hebrew mind, numbers of completion, numbers of perfection, just as 7 is. This is a picture, a description of judgment for the whole world. 1600 stadia is symbolic for judgment upon the whole world. The winepress of God's glory. And he's borrowing from, from the Old Testament prophecies, prophets. Joel 3.13 Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. And again in Isaiah 63, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like, those, like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them with, in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Isaiah 63 is very clear. The prophet is asking, who is this woman? Who is this one coming in crimson garments? And the Lord says, It is I. Jesus coming in judgment, coming alone. And it's talked about in the last verses of Revelation 14. So John is looking back to the prophets and in his vision showing how their prophecy will be fulfilled. He is confirming that. Does this make sense? Revelation 15, I don't know if we'll get into 16 or not, but let's move into Revelation 15. Now, we've looked in chapter 6 through the early part of chapter 8. We went through the seven seals, and then the rest of chapter 8, all the way through 11, 19, we looked at the seven trumpets. Chapter 15, Scripture reads, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Here we have final judgment 
a vision of final judgment, and it's escalated. It's a little more graphic, a little more intense, and it's final. Verse 2, I saw what appeared to be the sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold on their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So he's giving us a picture, a vision of the throne room of heaven, the sea of glass around the throne, and they're all around standing on that, around that glass singing glory to God. A victor's song. Verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. The sanctuary of the tent of witness is an image or a vision of the temple of God much like Israel had in the wilderness and also on Jerusalem, on the mount in Jerusalem. After this I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, According to Revelation 15, the final judgment is about to begin. Are there any questions? I can go into chapter 16, but... Um, that very likely is, I've read three different commentaries and two of them say that it is, one of them says it's not necessarily so. We have to be very careful with this. Um, other than the fact that this is proclaimed in the beginning of chapter 15 as the final judgment, then it's, this might be something different. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the way I take it, this kind of opens up the final three judgments of the trumpets and the seals. So it is a recapitulation of those final judgments or the end of the world judgments. And as we get into this next week, we're going to see that a lot of these final judgments sound, and, and this has happened before, they, they're described, they sound a lot like the judgments upon Egypt, the pl ten plagues of Egypt. They sound very similar. And the death and the destruction and the judgment that they bring is very intense. And very scary. And very icky. Be a great chapter to read Halloween night. Just joking. comments or any questions you guys are free to challenge anything I say or question anything I say I, I know that there are different points of view we, we can talk about it mm-hmm It's not clearly explicit, but his children are safe.
Well, moving back to verse 12, you're asking about the safety of the saints, safety of the faithful. Um, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's a word of comfort, a word of promise, a word of hope, but not a word of deliverance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it it mentions nothing at all about a secret rapture or a surprise rapture. It sure looks like it. Well, um, I don't want you confused. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, it's not explicitly clear, but if you look at, as we read through this, um, particularly next week in chapter 16, in the language he borrows from Old Testament history, uh, the people of Israel were in Egypt when the plagues were going on, but God kept them safe. But here, because the forces of evil are still present in the world. They want to persecute the people of God. If, if they are still here, he's given them a promise. Um, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 14 for endurance. This, and this is not the first, this endurance of the saints, endure until the end. So there's a very likely interpretation here that A lot of Christians are going to suffer. And a lot of Christians are suffering. If you follow the voice of the martyrs, you read a lot of that that's going on now. What 
how do we, how do they endure unless they have the grace of the Lord with them? That's why we need to be looking for our eternal hope more than we're looking for our present comfort and safety. Father, we're thankful for your word and its truth, and we're thankful for the honest presentation that your providence have given us. They've been faithful. Help us to take their language with integrity and an understanding and wisdom. And help us, Lord, to trust you. More than we trust anything in this world. Let us hope in you forever. For you have given us your love, your mercy, and salvation. It's for the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.